this is Charlie Gladstone. Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending when you are listening to this. Thanks very much for joining me. I'm recording this in Wales on the most amazing day. It's one of those days when the sun is beating down, and it reminds you not only that we've got the sun, but quite how wonderful it is. So I hope that it's as nice where you are when you're listening to this as it is here today. I've been in the car a lot recently, driving around all over the place, trying to, I suppose, do what is called doing business. Uh, I've been listening to a great deal of podcasts, um, the masters really, Malcolm Gladwell's brilliant revisionist histories, uh, Mark Maron's WTF. I find that one equal parts brilliant and infuriating, but there are some wonderful ones. And of course, Adam Buxton, who doesn't do enough as far as I'm concerned, and who is just completely brilliant at it. My car is a total mess as I've been in it so far, so much this year. Uh, there's sort of endless Amazon packages and uh, lots of tools and bits of junk and old chewing gum wrappers. Uh, I keep meaning to clear it out, but it's one of those things that doesn't quite happen. So maybe I, yeah, I'm going to do that when I finish this. I've been listening to um, podcasts really to try and wean me off the War on Drugs most recent album. I didn't think I liked the War on Drugs until relatively recently. I didn't really like their last album, Bar One, but then I started listening to the new one and it's just completely consumed me. I don't really know why it is. I can't quite put my finger on it. I mean, there are lots of great elements to it, but I'm completely addicted to it. And being a person who only had a few albums when I was growing up, I think sort of two albums was a, a Christmas present. I'm very used to playing them on repeat and then I do it until I'm completely bored rigid of them and can't listen to them for six months. So I'm trying to stop that. I've been struggling to listen to a lot of other music, actually. Although the Times did describe the new Hookworms album as an instant classic this morning. And uh, so I listened to that when I was in the car and, and there might be some really good driving tracks on that. And certainly there were one or two, I think one called Opener that made me go much faster than I should have been going. I've also been listening to a load of books in the car. Um, I got most of the way through Sapiens, which I think is, is probably a bit over long, but um, it's got some absolutely fantastic and fascinating ideas in it. I've listened to all of the John Ronson books, many of which I've read anyway. Have you listened to the butterfly effect by him, which was commissioned, I think, for Audible and is now more widely available? That's great. Actually, I've also been reading um, in a proper book the Tom Hanks short stories, uh, which a number of people, including my sister, recommended to me, and they are quite remarkable. I don't quite know how someone can be so good in so many areas, and in many ways being an actor and a director and a sort of polymath almost mitigates against him, because you kind of think he can't be that good at writing, but, but these are really wonderful, really gentle, really simple stories, and they, they do stick with you. In many ways, and I think it might be a comparison that's made on the jacket, he's, he's almost as good, I think, as Alice Munro. Anyway, why am I talking about this? Um, well, I just thought I would. And, and I was thinking earlier um, how nice it would be if you would rate this podcast on Apple, if you like it, that is. Um, why do I want you to rate it? I mean, people normally say so more people can find out about it, but, but I'm not particularly worried about that. But I just like it if you rated it, if you like it. Don't rate it if you don't like it, please. It seems quite complicated to rate this, and a number of people have asked me how you do it. 
I think you have to go to your iTunes account on your laptop and rate it and sign in and rate it there. I don't think you can do it on your phone. Anyway, if you like this, please do that. So, sorry, enough about my um, rambling on, enough of me rambling on or, or ranting or whatever it is. Um, anyway, there's some good positive things to start with. Today's conversation is, and now we come to the important bit, with Dan Kieran, who is the CEO of Unbound Publishing. Dan believes that his method of publishing is the future of publishing, and he is clearly being proven right. He and two friends have taken the company from employing, I think, probably just the three of them, not very long ago, to employing, I think, around 40 people. He's raised an enormous amount of money for the business, I think about six million pounds. So other people clearly think he's onto something. It's one of those interviews that reminded me precisely why I do this podcast. Everyone that I speak to is fascinating and I really enjoy all the conversations, but this one in particular was one that left me really inspired and I consciously remember leaving his office with a spring in my step thinking, yes, this is great. I went to see him in late January at his office in London, N1. It's in the most beautiful area full of vernacular old merchants' buildings. I think it's called Wharfside on the side of a canal in, in North London, or sort of just the south of North London. Anyway, um, I went in there and we had a wonderful chat and the results are here. It was a little bit noisy, so I hope that my editor, my friend Jim Friend, can sort that out. Um, but anyway, I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, sorry for rambling on. Here is Dan Kieran. My thing is I have to talk to find out what I think. Y- yes, but I, that, I think that's quite interesting because actually, if you have an idea that you've been sort of, that's been germinating for... A week or two, and you and you and you speak it. Then you suddenly rationalise it in yeah, a way it makes that you it didn't... suddenly you can see it. Yeah, but I did, so I know all about this because my book's all about this. And we had thoughts before we had language. Yes. So we were making decisions before we could articulate the reason for making them. And language came later. So language, I think, is always there's a gap. But there's always some sort of language. Well, I mean, people presumably had their hands. Yeah, their, sure. You yeah, know. gestures. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But in terms of like the richness of vocabulary, I think basically there's a gap between what you think and what you're able to say. And so words are the attempt to bridge the gap between those two things. And then do you think, so do you think that anyone can write then? Um, yes, but I think you, if you're prepared to spend a lot of time doing it really badly, yes. Yeah, and just, just practice every yeah, day and I mean, get better and I think, Lots of people think, oh, I can write or I can't write. I think everyone has the capacity to write because if you're a human being, you're interesting and have ideas. Yes. But you might not be prepared to put in the hours of writing. I mean, when I used to write for Tom at The Idler, when I was trying to get pieces through to the magazine, he would openly laugh at me at how shit what I was writing Right, was. okay. I mean, really merciless. Like, right. <laughs> this is just the worst thing I've ever seen. It's funny, though. and I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll come back onto piste. From listening to your talk, and particularly, I got the sense that you have sort of, although you're not an academic because you've dropped out of university twice, you, you, you have academic interest, don't you? I think I'm really curious, definitely. But you, but you speak about academic things. 
In, I, really good. I get, well, I don't know if that's... Um, I could see a connection with Tom there very straight away because I think what, what Tom, what, what's really interesting about Tom is his kind of um, everyman sort of rock and roll seriousness. Yeah, okay. Well, Tom, Tom's a complete genius. I mean, he's literally one of my living heroes. He's is he? Yeah, amazing. well, that's, that's, I, I think he's amazing too. No, he's a complete genius. And he's, what, one of his great geniuses is his generosity. So when we're at the Idler, he basically would, sh he was always sharing his ideas and things with people to make them better. And that was something I learned from him. That it's, you know, my big thing is vulnerability and being open because you get more if you do that than if you try and hold things too tight. You know? So now you're a CEO of a you know, successful company. Are you still, are, are you a control freak? Or, I mean, I know it's by de definition, it's quite a democratic yeah. company or idea. Well, I mean, I've learned lots of things doing my job. One of the, one of the things I've, I'm most interested in is you often, you can most effectively show the power you have by not wielding it. Um, I think there's something about everyone should experience some form of power because it teaches you so much. I think what's interesting at the moment is m the men's relationship with power is being exposed for being incredibly unhealthy in a lot of cases, which I think is really, it's really good that that's all coming out. But yeah, how, how, you, how you cope with responsibility is interesting. So I am a control freak, but what's interesting about, I'm interested in the journey from co-founder to CEO, which is how I explain the transition you go through when you, because anyone can start a business. Yes. And that's why Founders it's great. become a big word, hasn't yeah, it? But I mean, it doesn't really like, mean anything. Anyone can be literally, and that's why it's so good and people should do it, because anyone can do it. But running a business with 40 staff and having been a founder, like you have to make a journey between those two points. So what you what you tend to what you have to do is you have to basically give up power by to people who are better than you. So I have to hire people that are better than me at everything mm. the business requires. And that is hard And to then do. remember every day that they're better at, at it than you. Yeah, and you know, because you, you have to be in it, and you, but you have to be outside of it, so you have to have a perspective on it, which you can only get by having distance, but at the same time you have to know what's going on. So it's a complete paradox, which of course is brilliant, because they're the most fun things about being alive, is negotiating paradoxes. But so, Unbound yeah. is, is something that you, you, you in many ways can't, I mean you can have control over the direction and, and the books that you put up for you know, for, for, sure. for, for funding, but you can't have power over what's funded, can you? No. So tell me, tell me the concept of Unbound. Yeah, okay, so the concept is um, basically traditional publishing, publishing is a very, it's very hard to get into it. And it's, um, you know, whether it's ethnic backgrounds, you know, we're doing an anthology of working class writers because working class writers traditionally don't get represented by traditional publishing. Traditional publishing is, you know, 90%, describes itself as 90% white British. Um, so it's a very, but it, it's not just diversity in terms of cultural identity or skin colour, it's also a lack of diversity in terms of interests. So one of our most successful books is a book about bad video games. So the video game community didn't feel traditional publishing was serving them. So what we've tried to do is build a platform that brings publishing to everybody who feels like they're not part of that clique. So, um, the way the platform works is authors come to us with an idea for a book they want to write, wherever they, whoever they are, wherever they're from. Could be an established author who wants to do something unlike their normal books, which is how we got Raymond Briggs and people like that. Or we get people for whom traditional publishing just feels like this closed thing they can't get anywhere near. And then our only rule is we will put up anything if it's good enough. 
Now, I know that's a you know arbitrary definition, but it's not really. By Most good enough, the, do you mean sufficiently thought through, or yeah, it has to have a it has to have a level, it has to have, reach a threshold of quality. So they bring a similar pitch to you that they would to a traditional publisher. Yeah, often it's the same thing. But what's interesting in a traditional publisher is they may be offered a book which they think is absolutely extraordinary, but because they don't sell books to readers, they sell books to shops. They're not in control of what they publish, so they might have to say no to great books because there's no route to market that will justify them investing in producing that book. Mm. We don't have that problem. We can put anything on Unbound that's good enough because the readers, if enough readers support it, then we make it. And then it is sold in bookshops. And sometimes it's really hard to get those books in bookshops because by the nature of them, they're unusual. Like The Wake, which was long listed for the Man Booker Prize, written in its own language, tells the story of the resistance to the invasion of 1066. Yes, I, 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 I've heard you talking about The Wake. When you say written in its own language, what do you mean? I mean, it's literally written in an imagined version of Old English, which is incredible because when you read it, you can understand it, but when you read it out loud, you can understand it intuitively. It's completely extraordinary. Now, the year that came out, Sainsbury's won Bookshop of the Year yes. in the traditional the sort of rewards. Jamie Oliver and... Right, and, yeah. so, so, what, so what you've got is, you've got a marketplace which is deciding what is published, and that marketplace is bookshops and Amazon. Um, so traditional publishers, John, my co-founder, likens traditional publishing to agribusiness. There are five crops that they farm, TV tie-in, genre fiction, popular science, celebrity memoirs. You know, and if you fit into one of those categories, they'll get, they get great yield from those crops. You know, they're incredibly well versed and rehearsed in how to extract the most value. But we're interested in the best books, I think, are the ones you didn't know you wanted to read that come from kind of nowhere. And, and it's harder and harder for traditional publishers to do those books. And there are many great people in publishing navigating those frustrations, I suppose, those, that, that gatekeeper model, because they don't sell books to people that read books. So you, so me and another thousand people subscribe to a book, and that gives you enough money to print 5,000 copies or? It was much less. So basically our average, our average pledge is 35 pounds, which is seven times more than the average price paid for a book in a shop. Right. So people will spend more money. And that's one of the things we do is we offer different price points. So we sold a pledge level to the King of Malaysia for 30,000 pounds for one of our books. JK Rowling pledged 5,000 pounds for one of our books. Now you can't spend 5,000 pounds on a book in a shop. No. So it's, a, it's about sort of serving that demand curve. So what happens is 300 people on average need to pledge 35 pounds on average to right. raise 10,000 yeah. pounds on average, which is the amount of money we need to produce a book to professional standards. So everybody that works here has worked for lots of traditional publishers. Our um, guy who does our covers has worked for every publisher in the country. So uh, John, my co-founder, has published The Beatles, Murakami. There are people in this building that have published everybody you can think of. And that professionalism, we believe, makes books better. And I so know. you do every, so you then do every aspect yeah, with, so like a conventional publisher. Yeah, so once we've raised that 10 grand, we can then make the book, and we can get it to the point of physical copies when the IP is in a form that can be sold, whether it's digitally or sell international rights, or we've sold the film rights to the weight to Mark Rylands. So once it then exists as a thing, then we kick into gear as a, in the same way any publisher would. The difference is the, the first stage. So we can be much more, we don't have to worry about risk so much, we can take anything. And then it's the audience that decides whether that book goes into the next phase of being published through into bookshops. So people are doing, so in other words, but, but I mean, 
if you raise the 10 grand and that will only make 300 books, yeah, then just, that's all you make. Yeah. But, it, but if it'll make 2,000 books, then you'll make Yeah, so let us know. We sold 4,000 copies in advance, effectively, before it became a huge hit. Um, but we print a trade edition, um, which goes in bookshops. So every, all the books we've, we put on the site that raise £10,000 are sold into bookshops, which is a lottery ticket, you know. Mm. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, so let's note, the first, I've, I've got both of those and they are wonderful, but the first, so the first edition of the first one went out to sort of 300 people. Uh, 3,000. 3, okay, and, you, you had a, and then you had 1,000 spare copies or whatever, and they go into the shops and then the... Then you're the in the market, and then suddenly effect. everyone wanted it, so we printed more and became a huge success. Right, okay, amazing. So, amazing. I mean, the, the point is, you, anyone can come to Unbound, and if they are successful, they can go all the way through in terms of what publishing offers you. They can end up winning awards or selling the film rights or being published in 20 countries. And you had this idea almost at the beginning of the sort of fundraising moment. Yeah, Kickstarter was a year old. That's when we first started um, thinking about it. Um, but I mean, I, I, you know, I'd spent 10 years writing books and had a great time and then essentially lost my career. Um, publishers stopped paying advances to authors like me who were selling between 10 and 20,000 copies of a book um, and they became much more risk averse than they already were. Amazon was showing its hand and depressing the value of the written word by bringing prices down, which is obviously good for readers, but it was calamitous for authors. Mm. I mean, the average author earns £12,000 a year and if you take out the top 10%, the JK Rowlings of this world, it falls to £4,000. Right, okay. So it's a profession in profound crisis. It's not something you can do to raise a family on. Um, so does Unbound have a kind of an ethical stance in it then that you will pay authors more or is it yeah, just... Yeah, so it's a 50-50 profit share. So we never make more from an author's book than the author makes, which was a really important thing for us when we started out um, because publishers are incredibly... Well, the way it works is they, they were traditionally in those days paying advances. So they would pay you 20... I got between 20 and £50,000 for an advance for books. Bloody hell. And then they were... Yeah, they were good yeah. days. Um, and then, effectively, the, you would get a royalty, which was um, a percentage of the cover price. And if, you know, the, lots of people don't understand the economics of bookshops. If a £10 book is sold in a shop, the bookshop gets £6, the publisher gets 4 and the author usually gets about 40p. Right, OK. So you've got to sell a lot of books. And that goes against their advance anyway. Yeah, and that goes against the advance of £20,000 or whatever they earn. So you have to sell a whole lot of books before mm. you're earning out your advance. Meanwhile, the publisher is making three pounds a copy, so they're making a fortune. Yes. Now, no one minds that if you're paying a big advance, because that's how agents work. They're getting a percentage of the advance, the upfront money, and it was often a joke among agents that if you ever earned out your advance, they'd failed you as an author, because their job is to get you more from the publisher than your books are worth. Yes. You know, that was always the kind of way it was discussed and talked about. But it just means the karma's wrong and everyone's lying to each other. And, you know, it's, and we used to, John used to call it hush money. You know, we'd give you £30,000 in order to screw up your book. Yes. And very often, you know, they, they buy your book effectively. So they can, like I had one of my books, they changed the title a week before publication. Oh, sorry, they changed the title before, without telling me. Which was that? Uh, I did a book called um, uh, Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Um, and I mean, but that happened all the time. Like a buyer from WH Smith will say, if it's called this, I'll buy loads. 
So their title gets changed, because, and they can do that. And the covers get changed for Walmart or Amazon or yeah, whatever. Exactly, all the because time. The, because your contract that you signed with them in exchange for the money you got has given them the right to do all of those things. So you were you were um, successful. I mean, Crap Towns is actually. I always thought it's it's much much better book when you read it than you thought it was going to be. Or I'd, I, it was for me. I mean, I had it sitting around for ages. Right. And just kind of thought it's one of those books you get for Christmas and it looks yeah. quite amusing. And then I started reading it and it's actually, it's actually really good. Yeah, it's really funny. Yeah, but you, so book. you did that and you did Planes, Trains and Automobiles, which is about you traveling in well, all sorts of different... Well, I was, yeah, well, I was fascinated by... I just had this idea that um, why is it that the men who want to take hide and take solace from the modern world are taking solace in the machines responsible for creating the modern world. Because that's what, they were these guys in sheds playing with trains and hiding from the world. So it was about enthusiasm. I love enthusiasts. I love mm. people with passion for subjects. That just gets me, I just want to know why. Why do you love that so much, you know? So yeah, I spent a year um, hanging out with machine enthusiasts, trying to understand why men love machines, because I'm not a machine head at all. But I had, I, I spent a month driving across England in a milk float. And I became very attached to our milk float, which was this vintage 1957 electric milk float. So it was some mission to see if sort of environmentally friendly travel was Yeah, possible. I wanted to see whether you could love travel and the planet at the same time. And I was, I was really interested in slow travel because I didn't fly for a long time. And I would only travel by trains and boats and buses and things. Because I'm, you know, I spent a lot of time at the Idler, I genuinely think the slower you go in your life, the more content you are. But then there isn't much... It's, that's interesting because there isn't much evidence of that now. You're CEO of a, of a big publisher that's winning yeah. awards and publishing books, so you can't be going that slowly now. Well, I think, I suppose I would challenge... Well, my, one of the things I'm obsessed with at the moment is that the wrong people think... The wrong people want to be entrepreneurs. I am absolutely not the kind of person that wants to be an entrepreneur. I spent my whole life, I grew up under Margaret Thatcher, like entrepreneurship was not something that I respected or admired. Why? Um, just because it was... Um, I don't know, Philip Greens and Alan Sugars, all the poster boys of entrepreneurship. I was like, I don't want to be like that. I haven't just felt nothing in common with those people. You know, the sharp suit, fast car. I see, okay, that sort of model, that kind like of 1980s. That. So I, when of... I look at that, I was yeah. like, well, that's not what I'm interested in. So forget that world. So I basically was like, business, get out of here. You know, business people don't see their children. They only care about money. You know, they live this, and then they have this kind of terrible moment in their 60s where they realise their life's been pointless and they become obsessed with the arts. Right? I was like, well, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to just go straight into the arts and be fascinated by writing and books and stuff. But through various circumstances beyond my control, I have ended up accidentally starting a business mm. and mm. discovered that it's one of the most culturally enriching and personally exciting challenges you can embark on. I totally agree, yes. Yeah, I mean, well, I so what, 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 what particularly have you enjoyed about this stage, your, your latter um, Well, it's career. the, it's the, it's the um, growth journey. I mean, without question. Personal growth. Or, yeah, I mean, yeah. every failure and weakness in my life, about in my character, has been exposed and put under a microscope. And, and you, you like are, that. Yeah, you? because you either deal with those things about yourself or you will, the business will fail. So for me, the, to be honest with you, to be completely candid, I'm not that interested in a financial exit. I'm interested in the person I'm becoming through the journey of running this business because I am so different now, and I have had to look into the dark recesses of my identity and deal with things that I would never have, I would have hidden from if I'd been able to. If you'd been working for someone else or by yourself. Or if or... I'd been carrying on writing books, I wouldn't have ever had to face the yeah. 
you know, I mean, I've had, I've had huge success and then ended up with nothing. I've had, you know, I've raised a huge amount of money. I've raised six million pounds investment for Unbound, which is a huge amount of money. And then the pressure that comes with that. I have 40 staff. I've gone from three people in a pub running a company to where we are now. So your, so your career is really interesting because you dropped out of university twice. And the yeah. second time, you, you, what, what happened? Well the, um, well, the second time, well, I mean, I, deli- I didn't, I never intended to finish that degree. I basically went to university the second time just to move to London. Because in those days, it's, <laughs> it sounds terrible now to anybody going to university now, but in those days, as a mature student, you got paid to go to university. So I got, basically, they paid my fees, and I think I got like three grand a year. Yes, yeah, I had the same. So I basically got out of London, uh, sorry, got out of my hometown and moved to London. And to be honest, there, I mean, I'd been ill for a long time, but I was, I became, I had agoraphobia. Became Did you agoraphobia. drop out because you were ill? Uh, well, I knew I didn't want to do it, but I stopped going because I physically couldn't leave my flat. So yes, I mean, it was, I mean, I was in a really bad way. Wow. And I spent about, I mean, I, I didn't literally never go anywhere, but I very rarely went anywhere. And I wouldn't get on the train or the tube or anything. And I used to, you know, I just go for walks, but have panic attacks at beyond certain distances. How old were you when you started suffering from that? Um, well, it, it got really, I mean, I had it from, I had it from the age of about 18 to, to then. I moved to London when I was 21, 22. So I'd had it on and off, I'd now recognised for about four years. But, but that, you hadn't identified what it was? No, because well, in those days, you didn't talk about mental health. Like no. I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody. Like, nobody knew I had that problem. Um, because it just wasn't something that you talked about. And, and when you have something like that, you, you kind of deliberately want to hide. Like, the whole point is you're trying to annihilate yourself. Yes. So when you don't do anything, friends stop calling you. Is that right? You're in a vortex, a kind of destructive, think, self-destructive I th- vortex. I think, you're just, I think it's just, a, I mean, I don't know. I, haven't, I wasn't diagnosed and I don't know anything about it in terms of, I haven't read about it particularly, so I wouldn't want anyone to think I know what I'm talking about. But in terms of my personal experience, I feel as though I was just trying to disappear. I think I just felt like I wasn't worth, I wasn't worth existing. So I think I was just gradually vanishing. And you sort of deliberately destroy your relationships because you don't want people to contact you and ask you to do things because you know you won't be able to do them. Right. So okay. you're sort of deliberately trying to cut yourself off. So did you come to London to try to break that cycle? Yeah, I, was, I knew I was ill. And I, to be honest, I was in a bit like, well, I, my life hasn't worked out the way I hoped it would. So I might as well just go for it, even if kind of psychological, you know, breakdown is imminent. I'm going to try anyway. Yeah. Um, and then it was around that time that I still had it and it, my life has had lots of really interesting coincidences and serendipitous events and that was when, that was when I basically had always read The Idler and I loved it as, as, from my issue number three and I was walking on one of my walks near my flat in Camden and I went past a bookshop and there was the Kramer issue in the window and I looked at it and I thought that, you know, my life's fucked and what I should have been doing is working for the idler because that's where, that's where I belonged. But You're still at happened. university technically at Yeah, I was stage. technically at university. And um, I bought a copy, I went back to my flat and I thought, fuck it, I'm going to ring them. They must be in London. Maybe I can get work. I mean, this is insane. I can't leave my house and yet I'm going to try and get work experience. 
And then I looked at the address of the Idler office and it was next door to my flat. Right, okay, that's extraordinary. So it was literally the only place I could work because I could see my home from their office. So I could be there and know if I had the panic and had to run home. You could get home. I could get home. And so, and I wasn't getting paid. I worked for free so that I could. So, so you, you went and knocked on the door? Basically, I rang up the receptionist and I said, you're not going to believe this, but I've just found your magazine and I live next door and I'm the biggest fan of it and I must, you must let me come and do work experience. And the receptionist thought this was very funny and put me through to Tom. And Tom was like, well, yeah, all right, you can come do work experience. Come and do two weeks, I'll find you a slot. And I don't know why I said this, but this, is, this changed my life. I said to him, no, I don't want to do two weeks. I want to do every Wednesday. And he was like, well, that's unusual. I said, yeah, I know, but I thought if I come every Wednesday, I might be a bit more useful because I won't just come. And, and he was like, oh, okay. Which is actually very logical. It was very sensible, yeah. yeah. So I did that. And you know, after like six to nine months, I can't remember how long it was, I'd made myself indispensable in the sense that they got used to me being around. And you were doing what? Writing, sort of no, I wasn't writing, writing or editing? Like, or? I was, my writing was appalling or editing. I was basically dog's body. Right, okay. But dog's body turned into, you know, this thing called the internet happened. And I said to them, we don't have a website. Why don't I build a website? And they're like, well, who, no one knows. Do you know how to do HTML? I said, I've got no idea, but I'll buy a book. So I bought a book on HTML and I built the idle website. And it was the idle website which, where we did this thing called Crap Towns as a place to bunk off work. Try and build, we tried to build a website that you would go to when you should be working. That was the premise. So we would get readers to write funny stories because idler readers are very intelligent people. Yeah, absolutely. Who are, lots of them are great writers. There aren't very many of them, but they're a very interesting group. And so they were writing these really funny stories. And we did it about jobs and then we did it about towns. And then the site went from like a thousand visits a week to a hundred thousand in a day. And it just became this huge thing. And we won a Yahoo award for best website. And, and then we got a book deal, and then that's how, became, that's how I got into books. And do you feel massively fired up by the, by the books? I mean, do they, that, that must keep you going, I assume. Some of them must excite you a, a yeah, lot. Yeah, I mean, we have a story at Unbound, where, um, which is something we've discovered, which is that every book has a story not contained in the pages of the book. And it's the story about why that book has to exist. And, my, every, and every, I always look for them. Every book has one. One of my favourite ones is our first book, Terry Jones, Evil Machines. Terry Jones, the Python. Um, not very well at the moment, sadly, but he's been a, was an amazing advocate for Unbound. He was our first book. Fantastic. He's, he's the reason we did it, because Justin, who's friends with him, got a book from Terry when we had the idea to launch Unbound. And when your first book is by a Python, you think, well, we have to not just drink in the pub and talk about this, we're going to have to do it. Do a good one. So, as I said before, you can pledge for different levels of Unbound. So lots of people pledged to come to the launch party and have lunch with Terry. And so we had like 25 people turned up and one of them, there's a, a lady coming from Russia. Now we all assumed she was some oligarch's daughter, but she turned out to be a librarian and she'd spent a large proportion of her pension savings on his pledge level and flying to London to meet him. Wow. And it turned out that she'd watched illegal VHS or Betamax videos of Python in Russia when she was growing up. Now, her and Terry sitting together for an hour on the sofa, talking and laughing, we were like, he left with his eyes welling. It was literally the moment of her life, and she said that afterwards. When we saw that on our first launch party, we were like, Christ, we don't sell books. Like, we're making stuff happen that wouldn't exist. Not just the book, 
Yes. And every book has a story like that. Um, and some of them are, you know, pure Rose Bratesh's memoir about a really obs obscure form of OCD where she has constant sexual thoughts. An amazing book. She's an incredibly beautiful, successful young woman, despite having this difficult problem. She was very worried about how publishing would try and portray her. She was very keen that she told her story and presented her story in a way that was authentic to her. And she wasn't just, you know, another beautiful woman on the front cover of the book. Um, and she was absolutely solid about how she did her book. And we were part of our briefed authors is we give you creative freedom. Anyway. We got a message on the chat board um, of her book, a father saying that his daughter had, she did a, an article in The Guardian about this, and um, he'd come on our website and was like, my daughter's just handed me this article saying that she's got this and she was suicidal, but now she's read your story. We're Amazing. gonna try and get her some help. I, I really like your notion that um, I think is your do lectures one again, which is that you don't have ideas, ideas have you. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that what, created Unbound, I mean, because yeah, there's obviously some calling here and some power and, and listening and, and watching you talk about these two, those two books in particular. Did, did this just kind of grab hold of you and? Well, I mean, for me, it was a necessity, but what's interesting is when you start a business, everybody's very nervous and jostling for positions. So you get lots of arguments over whose idea it was. And I had this with, in my career with books, um, when you do books with people you get lots of battles over who owned it and who came up with it. Um, but what Unbound taught me is that I had a, I had a personal situation. I mean, I, I decided I was going to write a book without a publisher and I was going to make a video and put it on my own website and ask people to give me money. And if I got enough money, I would send them the book. So, I mean, that was the idea for Unbound in inverted commas. But it, it, wasn't, it wasn't enough. That wouldn't have no. led to you sitting here and us having this conversation. What led to us having this conversation is that that idea, it had me in that way, but it had John who had spent decades working in traditional publishing and had been marketing director of Waterstones. It had him in a different way. And Justin, our co-founder who worked in the movies and was a very successful author in his own right, the idea had him in a certain way. And everybody in this who works at Unbound, the idea has had them all in different ways too. Right. So my big thing is, I think if, if you, it's like trying to hold water, the more you try and hold it, it disappears. And I'm quite extreme when it comes to ideas because ideas have given me everything I hold dear. I mean, in terms of things I've achieved and things I've spent my life doing. And everyone always like, you have a notebook and I have notebooks and I like notebooks, but when I have an idea, I never write it down. And that always shocks people. And it's because I don't want to own it. I don't want to confine it. Because if they're good ideas, they come back. And they come back in different ways. Do you know, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm it's not a sure about that, Well, it's actually. a terrifying thought for people to not yes. write them down. Because if I have a good idea late at night, or what I think is a good idea, I write it down somewhere because I... Yes, yeah, I don't. I'm playing swing ball. I try and bat the bloody thing away. And okay. I've got enough going on. I don't need that. And they come back. Yeah. And yeah, so I think I, it's probably true. I, I think I'll forget them, but in fact, in reality, I probably don't forget them. No, and I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying that th I'm a big fan of thinking about ideas in a different way, and they are in the, they're out there around us. And different people will come up with, will, will have them in different ways. But for me, it's ownership. If you try and own an idea, I think you kill it. Um, so I think you have to share them. Mm. And I don't mean you give it away, you become, you know, people trample on you. I just mean, 
you have to create an atmosphere where ideas are not something that you can find. They're, like, they're things that you release and that you kind of nurture. And you have to be more giving and generous with ideas if you want to see where they're really going to end up. Because Unbound has become far more than that idea I had. And I could sit here and go, yes, I had the idea for Unbound in this situation. But what Unbound but is now, there's no seed. relation. Yeah. There's absolutely no relation yeah. to that moment. So you're, you're, you've raised six million quid, which is amazing. And every day you're persuading, oh, if that's the right word, or you're encouraging people to, to, to contribute to that fund, as it were. Well, no, no, so well, sorry, that's, that's investment I've got from VCs and stuff. As well as, well as the that's money. That's just to build the business. We've, I mean, we've taken five million in pledges. Okay. Plus, you know. I got those two muddled up. Okay, I read. So, and, and now you do talks about how to raise money. Yeah. I mean, and I don't want to kind of delve into the secrets of the, of the do lectures talk, but which, which are always very good, by the way. Um, but how, I mean, how's that, how have you done that? I mean, that's an amazing amount of money to have raised. Yeah, I mean, raising it from VCs is, you know, challenging in investors, absolutely. Um, Especially but, with books or not? Uh, well, I mean, I'm talking about raising it for the business. Yes, I know, but you're in books. I mean... Yeah, and well, it's very hard to raise money for a publisher because they're dying because their business model's disappearing. But no, I mean, in terms of the psychology of fundraising, I mean, what I've discovered actually is that this is another reason more writers should be entrepreneurs because raising money is telling stories. Unbound is the greatest story I have ever told. And the story I tell of Unbound is always different from the reality. And the trick is, can you build the thing you're, can you build the story you're telling? That's the trick. And um, that's the heart of it. Because, you, because your, your end notion is that Unbound is redefining the entire way that publishing is being done? Or am I just sort of, I'm, yeah, I'm guessing, obviously, I no, haven't there's no, heard I mean, you talk on this. But. In the, I mean, bureaucracies have always built up around creative endeavour. And what happens is those, whether it's television, music, publishing, whatever it is, film, and what happens is those bureaucracies, they, they, they spring up around creative endeavour to make money and to make it effective and make people a living and that kind of thing. But what happens over time is that bureaucracies become less interested in the creative endeavour and more interested in maintaining themselves, which is a kind of inevitability. It seems. So this is the kind of notion of the suits taking over? Well, or, yeah, I'm not sure. yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it, it's more that the institution takes over. So if you look at something, I mean, a good analogy is like, you know, the House of Westminster versus a protest, right? They're both politics, but one is bureaucracy and one is energy, dynamism, excitement, passion, right? right. I'm not saying there's no passion. In, no, no, I, I just, understand. But I just mean the yeah, bureaucracy becomes yeah. I mean, the BBC. I mean, I would, you know, I protest to protect the BBC, but it's an institution designed to protect the BBC. Um, which is why if you talk to people that are trying to get programmes made by the BBC, they're always banging their heads against the brick wall and they're miserable because mm. the wrong people are commissioning and everyone gets really upset. So the great, you know, the extraordinary opportunity for people who are alive at our moment in time is that the internet allows you to completely dismantle those bureaucracies because the audience and the creator can now come together. So I think any, if you're in any kind of creative industry, you have to, you have to add value to both those two components if you're going to exist in the future. And I think what publishing does, the professionalism and the integrity around publishing that makes books the best they can be and that pushes authors to write the best books they can write and to make them the best way they can be made is completely key to the, you know, to the transformation of the world and ideas and stories. 
So for me, that bit is value. So what you have to do is you have to build a business that sits in between the two groups, which is in our, in our case, are authors and readers, and does that publishing bit in the middle. So I have no doubt that that model is the future. Obviously, I'm trying to build that business. Um, hopefully, it will be us. But I don't think there's any doubt, really, that that's the way it'll end up. The question is, um, are Unbound going to be good enough to fill that space? Or will, or will the major publishing houses just start doing the same thing? Yeah, I mean, well, they never will. The question is more, will Amazon? Right. Um, and then, you know, because if Amazon do it, then game over. Yeah. Well, for everyone as well. Not just, not just perhaps for Unbound, <laughs> but for all the authors as well, I suspect. Yeah. Game over for all but about six people in San Francisco. Yeah, it's not good, man. Okay, and that's that. Thank you again for joining me. If you're still here, I assume that you enjoyed that. And as I said at the beginning, it would be great if you were to support me just by leaving me a nice rating on iTunes. Dan has subsequent to this conversation agreed to come and speak at the Good Life Experience. So more on that um, via our newsletters and, and social media and all that stuff. But thanks again for joining me and I look forward to hearing from you soon. Bye.